welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on March 28, 2018, focusing on tax reform's impact and planning considerations for high net worth individuals. The panelists for the webcast were Brittany Sachs, a PwC tax partner and leader of our personal financial services practice, as well as PwC tax partners Mark Nash, Mike James, and Frank Graziano, all with our personal services practice. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists, beginning with a general overview of the personal tax implications of tax reform and expanding into a more detailed discussion of Section 199A and the new pass-through deduction. Take a listen. If you haven't been focused on the personal tax implications of tax reform, it's time to start doing so, and, you'll, and you're going to want to listen up to a number of the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, so with that, I think we're going to jump right in um, and talk about you know, just a, first an overview. I'm going to just give a, a very brief overview before we get into some more of the real meat of the discussions. And, you know, when we think about tax reform, you know, a lot of tax reform was motivated by corporate reform bringing that rate down to 21%. Um, but I'll tell you, the interesting thing is almost every aspect of tax reform that we've been hearing about you know, applies to individuals in some manner, whether it's a direct type of an implication, where some of the items on the slide that you're looking at, or indirectly, as we were saying, a lot of the business reforms, particularly with flow-throughs and other, you know, have a direct impact or an indirect impact on the individual tax return and tax planning. So with that, let me, let me just focus on a couple items on this slide. These are the, some of the very uh, direct individual implications. So, for example, overall rate reduction, going from 39.6 down to 37% for that top rate and changing some of the bands, that directly impacts individuals. Uh, you know, as you can see, there was a lot of talk about changing capital gains and qualified dividends, but there weren't any. No change, still that 20% rate. The net investment income tax, that 3.8%, um, that Obamacare tax that's been talked about for so many years of, you know, is there repeal or not, it still applies. So it's still part of our planning. AMT, a lot of talk about there too, still applies to individuals. However, as we'll talk about, with a number of the itemized deductions being eliminated or drastically reduced, the implications of AMT should be greatly lessened for individuals. But we'll, we'll see about that as well. And finally, as some of the, one of the last basic changes is just the doubling of the standard deduction, which actually will allow many, many taxpayers to not itemize anymore. That is probably the one aspect of tax reform that actually is some simplification. Um, but uh, you know, as we'll see, there's quite a bit of complexity um, throughout the tax code. So, um, and, the, and the repeal of personal exemptions. So items that are a little more talked about or some of the itemized deductions. Um, the, item, you know, the state and local taxes, limiting that to a $10,000 deduction probably has been one of the most talked about areas. Um, certainly a great impact to a number of our clients and, and just a number of us here on this call. Um, mortgage interest, a little bit of a change, some limitations, still deductible, just instead of a, a million dollar limitation, we're down to $750,000. Um, the miscellaneous itemized deduction is another one I really want to point out as well because that is more our Section 212 expenses or expenses such as investment fees and as investment expenses. Many people, those, these, were the, these were the deductions that were subject to the 2% rule, um, but at the same time, um, 
you know, a lot of people were in AMT, but now that those are eliminated, that may also have an implication, um, as we're going to talk about throughout the throughout the webcast. And finally, just this repeal of the P's phase out. That was a 3% haircut on the itemized deductions that is now that really is now gone, which which actually is a welcome relief. I'm going to save the estate and gift items for later in the webcast when Mike is going to talk about that on the trust. But before we move on, I just wanted to just open to the panel. You know, if there, are there any items that are on this slide? Any items in particular that you've seen? I've been talking about with your clients. Well, certainly, Brittany, the state and local income tax deduction has been of interest to all of our clients, uh, not only the ones who live in high-tax states like uh, New York and California, but uh, even the folks that live in no-tax states you know, are having limitations on their real estate taxes and such like that, and many of them have flow-through entities that uh, give rise to non-resident state taxes in other states, such as California and New York, even if they're living in Florida and Texas. And so that, that cap is certainly something we've been talking about and modeling out for our clients. And since many of our clients have a lot of capital gain and dividend income, and so they didn't really see the benefit of the rate reduction because of their ordinary income, the loss of the deductions actually ended up uh, being a net tax increase for them when we modeled it out. So, um, and a lot of that has been because of the state and local income tax deduction that was lost. Interesting. Yeah. No, and, and Mark, as you say, New York and California being from Boston, Massachusetts has on its docket and right now being challenged a, a millionaire's tax, which would add an additional 4% surcharge to the Massachusetts rates and maybe have Massachusetts join that New York and California um, community of groups that we talk about state and local. Yeah, certainly a lot of discussion just on residency in general mm -hmm. um, and, re and giving some thought to where you live and how you're taxed in that particular state. So I think there's a lot more to come um, on that topic. So with that, I think that that's probably it for our, our overview. I'm going to turn it over now to you, Frank, I think, and let's focus on more the, the 199A sure. and the pass-through deduction. Sure. Thank you, Brittany, and thank you, everybody, joining the webcast here today. So 199A is a new section of the code that was introduced with the Tax Act. And as, it, as you, some of you may recall, during the House and the Senate going back and forth on the pass-through deduction, whether it was going to be 23 percent, 17 percent, um, it was really all being talked about because of the big impact and reduction of the corporate rate down from 35 to 21 percent. And in doing so, you know, the, we, they landed in, on 199A at a 20 percent deduction. Now, initially, most of my clients' guys called me up and said, this is great. That effectively on my pass-through income brings my rate from 37% down to 29.6. It's all great. Well, now that the rules have come out and we start digging into the rules and how to apply them, it's not as great as some of our folks might have thought about. And we'll talk about a few of those items, items now. So first, again, just remind you what the new law is. It really comes in and allows non-corporate taxpayers to deduct 20% of what's called qualified business income, which I'll get into in a second, um, that from from non-corporate taxpayers that are not specified service activities, which we'll define in a second. Those are two key points. But one of the things to remember is I'm talking to my clients around this and they're looking at the complexities, a lot of things that come up is, should I restructure my business? And one thing to point out is that these rules do sunset. Like many of the, the items that affect individual taxes as a result of tax reform in 2025. So couple things that, that this new law doesn't do. It doesn't reduce your net investment income tax. It should not reduce your self-employment tax because we believe the deduction is below the line after adjusted gross income. 
And then I want to clarify the, the bottom point here. The losses from a previous year are treated with, are netted with current year income and determined qualified business income. That loss that we're, we're talking about on this bullet relates to the QBI, qualified business income loss that might occur in any one year. It, it does not um, supposed to reflect net operating losses or passive loss carry forwards, just to clarify that bullet. So qualified business income, you know, what is it? So it's income that has to be effectively connected with a U.S. trade or business. Um, that's very important because as we talk about um, qualified business income, a lot of our clients that own S-Corps and investments and partnerships and flow-throughs, you know, they, some of those companies will invest and, and have operations outside the U.S. And this is really for the U.S. trade or business part of that income. It doesn't um, reduce your income on interest and dividends and investment type of income unless it's from a REIT or a co-op. Those are two things that were called out in the law that those, that those would apply to. Um, the other thing here is that it doesn't, it doesn't reduce your compensation. So many of our S-corporations will have compensation that are paid on a W-2 from their S-corp. So you get the deduction against the corp, that corporation's qualified business income. Net after that deduction, you don't get to reduce your wages by the 20%. That's an interesting fact because a lot of what I'm talking about with my clients is they, they have this rule, reasonable compensation right. in the S-corp setting. And in partnerships, is guaranteed payments, but that's typically for set fixed income or certain benefits that flow through to a, to a partner's line. Most of the partners still receive their ordinary income through just the ordinary share of income on line one, which would qualify if it's qualified business for the 20% deduction. Frank, could you, um, for some of our clients, we've done modeling mostly yes. around should they convert to C from S. Yes. And they're, they're thinking on the S calculation, they're going to be at this 29.6% rate. And one of the wrinkles in all that is the international operations. That's it's right. probably something to highlight. I think it's very important. Thanks, Mike. It's a good question. I think that when you, when you have your clients that have a company that has both U.S. operations and, and outside the U.S. operations, you have to break it out between the U.S. qualified business activities and the non-U.S. And it's very similar to the old Section 199 on the domestic production activity, right? This is 199 Cap A. It's very similar to that where you would bifurcate the two and come up with the U.S. qualified business activity income to be able to then apply the 20%. So when you're looking at a client that's looking S versus C, right. you, you simply just can't take the S corp income times 20% and say it's a deduction. There's other limitations, which we'll get into, that, that will also um, comp make it a little bit more complex. Um, but the interesting part around the guarantee payment and the wages goes around the fact that, uh, you know, with reasonable comp, would, it, would an S corp actually want to now pay even less wages to its owner so that the qualified business income could go up if they actually do qualify? And the IRS still has that reasonable comp section in there. The question is, is how, will they apply that reasonable comp in a partnership setting or a sole proprietor setting? That'd be very interesting to see if they ever do that to reduce qualified business income. So it sounds like you think that, that this could be an area that they're going to focus on a lot more. They, they have focused on reasonable comp for a yes. long time, but even more so because it's so much more critical to this type of That's calculation. Right. That's right. And then with, with, the, with the calculation, there's really two limitations that, that, that go into it. One is the specified service activities. And the second is just a W-2 wage calculation that, that we'll go into. So I'd like to just spend a few minutes about both of those. Sure. So specified services. So there's a list on the slide here that, that will list a bunch of specified services that the IRS has specifically called out that says these are businesses that won't, will not qualify for the 20% deduction. And you'll see that on the right of the slide, engineering and architecture must have had a good lawyer lobbying for themselves and not not for their own industry, where they got called out where those are not considered specified services and would still be eligible for the 20% deduction. 
one thing in the provision that was pretty interesting was that they added this this definition that it includes um, companies, special service, specified service income includes organizations and business income where the primary um, activity is done by through reputation or skill set of one employee, and that could be treated very broadly. There's yeah. really no there's really no um, guidance out there on how broad that could be treated, but. You, know, you could have a software a software company developing software to sell to its clients as a product, and is that considered that person because it's their skill and their technical abilities? Is that considered a specified service activity? It's very broad, um, so still waiting for some guidance on that to come. Yeah, you know, Frank, I, I've talked to a number of clients that as they think about their entities, a portion of their business could be specified, service, and a portion is not. But it's all within the same. Entity, for example. That's right. You know, what are what are you seeing or what are you he- thinking for those types of clients? So I think it's very interesting, Brittany, right? Like that's a great question in the fact that we have clients that I have a I have a husband I have a one of my high net worth individuals' wife owns her own sole proprietorship and she does both some some of these services as specified services, but then also sells products with her right. with her business. And they would be above a limitation, the, the income limitation, we'll talk about in a second, but they'll be above that. And the question is is you know, what do we do? Does how much taints the business? Does some specified business taint the whole business? Can you bifurcate? Again, no guidance here right now. If you took, again, the old 199 rules where you could bifurcate, Mm -hmm. the old 199 rules had a safe harbor where 5% of your business was in the non-qualified, you count all of it. Query is whether they will apply that under 199 cap A. Um, the other section is, is can you call it out and, and have two separate activities within one activity right. and do it? So I have clients that are saying, should I separate my businesses yeah, I've heard the same. and say, should I set up a separate partnership or a separate you know, LLC to hold the product sales stuff and the stuff that qualifies to my specified service so that I can get some of the deduction with, with the unknown? And if you read the, the provision, it doesn't say it has to be in separate entities. So you, right. you wouldn't necessarily think you'd have to go to the trouble to set up a separate entity for those lines of businesses and that we could bifurcate, but it's just not clear. And so a lot of folks are going for that safe route and saying, why not cull it out into a separate entity so that I'm sure that I've got the segregation that I need. That's yeah. right. So the first limitation is if you're in an industry, one, one of these speci- uh, providing specified services, you wouldn't qualify for the 20%, except for when, the, when you look at how, the, how it's calculated, anybody with under certain income thresholds, right? So under 157500 if you're single or $315,000 if you're married, filing joint, if you're taxable income, again, not the income res- respect to that activity, but your entire taxable income after deductions before the 20% deduction is below those limits, you get the 20% without regard to whether you're in a specified industry or whether you're in this wage limitation Bracket. So the second one is this wage limitation. So you've got specified service activities is one limit or this wage um, calculation, which, would li- which, w- which could limit the 20% to something below 20%. So this is one where, where again, it's very mathematical in, in the situation, but it comes up to a couple of questions that I'm being asked. Frank, I own five companies, and within those five companies, I have one company that pays the payroll. Or, or Frank, I lease my employees from a leasing company. Mm -hmm. And the rules the way they say right now on 199A says that you look at activity by activity to determine the 20% for that activity. And you take the W-2 wages of that activity. 
So if I've got one activity with wages and four without, does one maybe qualify and the other four are limited to zero because they don't have wages? And it's a very interesting question. Yeah. Still no clarity here. No, and I, and I think to dovetail on that too, so that's kind of this this common paymaster idea, but and then you know so many of our clients have businesses that's not one entity, that's multiple entities, and some of them could have income and some of them could have losses. And just what I've found is as we're going through this calculation, since as you mentioned, you have to do it separate, each separate, but then you kind of sum it all across, you can right. come up with some very surprising answers, That's depending right. on how this W-2 limitation may be interplaying. That's right. So it, it's absolutely imperative that you start to model that out as you're really thinking, before you rely on the, the thought that the 20% deduction is just flat, going to happen for your business, it's really important to look at it. Because we've seen some business. of our clients also thinking about um, moving employees around into those multiple entities to make sure that we have some wage base uh, in each one of those companies w to match where the qualified business income is. That's another planning idea we've been discussing. No, and, and I, I think when it comes to wages, one of the things I'd point out is that some of our partnerships and our clients in private equity will give management management incentive units and make them an owner versus an employee. And if you're one of those, if you have, if you're investing in one of those companies and you're giving those types of things, and they become no longer W two employees but wages, if you're somebody who's limited by the W two wage calculation, you really need to think through whether you should be doing a bonus plan. Or management incentive units. Right. A lot of questions here. A huge thank you to all my panelists um, for all that information. Very much appreciated. And thank you very much for today. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.